if you have uh, younger kids, um, we're going to be talking about some sensitive material. I'm not going to get any more graphic or anything uh, than Paul does in his, uh, his letter. So, but if you feel like you want to uh, step out with your kids, that's fine. If not, let's, let's do this. Um, 315 B.C., the city of Thessalonica is founded. Alexander the Great began his Hellenization there as the Roman road went right through the city. And so the city had Greek and Roman influences. And, and right now, I, I really, really want to channel my inner Jim Suddeth at this moment. You know, like the Roman road, Greeks, and all this stuff. Um, now that by the time Paul planted a church there, in Thessalonica in the first century and wrote the letter, this letter, this follow-up letter to them, 300 years after its founding, unrighteousness is widespread. Slavery was rampant so that people could spend time in leisure. Prostitution was a very prominent part of life, even of the religious life, since the worship of the so-called gods involved the use of temple prostitutes. The Greek orator Demosthenes said of the culture, we have courtesans, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately. This was a challenging, challenging place to live for the church in Thessalonica. For these new believers in Jesus who had come out of life, out of a life of systemic brokenness, broken sexually, a broken understanding of love, and a broken work ethic. If you go and read this letter, you will see that Paul is encouraging. It's a letter of encouragement to these new believers, and he's applauding them in their faith. The first chapter says that they had left their idol worship and put their faith in Jesus because they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead and that one day he would return. They embraced that truth. The return of Jesus to make all things new became their end game. The Greek word telos means completion or end. The return of Jesus became their telos. It it was what woke them up in the morning. But it seems like they had some sort of of misunderstanding about the return of Jesus. And and life was a struggle. Resisting temptation was a struggle. And they they asked this question, I think. Jesus is never going to return, is he? He's just never going to return. So what's the point? Let's face it. As Christians in the 21st century, we wrestle with this too, don't we? I mean, our our telos is the return of Jesus and the renewal of all things. We just just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. That means another year has come and gone. Things are tough. When is he going to return to new all, renew all things? Is he even going to return? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, let me ask you this. 
What is your telos? What is your end game? What wakes you up in the morning? If you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus and, and that one day we will be raised like him, if you, do, if you do not believe in life after life, then your telos logically must be either this life itself or something in this life. Let me see if I can prove this. Uh, actually, kind of all of us are defaulted this way. In our culture, what kind of buzzwords are popular with how we are to live this life? Uh, YOLO. You guys know this one? What's YOLO? You only live once. All right, you know it. Or, or how about this? She is living her best life. Yeah, right? Or how about life is short? I don't listen to country music much, but when I do, Tim McGraw, baby. I love me some Tim McGraw. In 2004, he released a song called Live Like You Were Dying. And what happens in the song? Uh, the narrator is a guy in his 40s that gets bad news from the doctor that he doesn't have much time to live. And so what's he do? Of course, he does all the bucket list things. He, he, he goes skydiving, rocky mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. He does extraordinary things. But he also says, and I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he finishes the chorus, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. He goes on in the second verse to, to talk about how he did ordinary things better, like being a, a better husband and friend. He always should have been. He, he gives eternity just this little bit of a nod in the song. Uh, I've always loved this song. And while I recognize the context is that of someone who has just heard he is going to die, the, the, thought, the thought of the song is, is, is that all we have is right now. And so I have to make the best of it. We have life Life now, and then what do we do? Well, what, do we call, what do we call the world to come? Afterlife, right? We, and maybe, maybe we don't even believe in the afterlife or life after death at all. So, so I got to get this important stuff done now. I want the good life now. And, and, the, and you may very well get it. If you, the good life is your telos, if, life, if your best life now is your telos, you might actually get it. But Jesus says in, in Luke 6, 24 through 26, that this, this is your consolation. I remember uh, when I was uh, first introduced to this idea of a consolation prize. The Signal Mountain Elementary Festival. When I was a kid, the parking lot of what is now the Mac uh, would be filled with booths. Uh, it was the highlight. I mean, truly, it was the highlight of my year when I was a kid, the Signal Mountain Elementary. I loved it. I ate it up. And especially the goldfish toss. Spent hours on that sucker. You would play these games, and, and, and if you didn't win the, the, the big prize, if you didn't win the major prize, you would get to dip your hand in the consolation bowl. Typically pull out a ring, like in the shape of a spider or something like that. Consolation prize. That's what your best life now is, if that's your telos. 
If your end game is your best life now, instead of the return of Jesus to make all things new, then you're like a kid opting for a spider ring instead of a brand new diamondback dirt bike. And just a little confession, even though the return of Jesus is my end game, without question, I often live like this life is my telos. Russell Moore put it this way, uh, just think of Just think about the word afterlife for a second. It assumes eternity is an endless postlude to where the the action, a postlude to where the action really happens. It's after. Our reward happens after we've lived our lives. Too many Christians see the hope of resurrection life as a capstone on their lives now. But but eternity, eternity is no mere afterlife, he says. Instead, let's start thinking of this little puff of time now, this this 80 or so years, as what it is. It's the pre-life. That's Russell Moore. Now listen, really carefully here, don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, One of my professors, it was his favorite phrase, and I love using it. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't live your best life now. I am saying don't make your telos on the one hand. If if your telos is getting out of this tough world to get to heaven, you're probably not going to live your best life now. And on the other hand, if your telos, if your end is living your best life now and you actually get it, that's your consolation. And according to Jesus, you will forfeit eternity. So Paul Paul brings in the gospel of Jesus and gives the people of Thessalonica, and he gives us another alternative. You see, if you're in, if your telos is the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection that is to come when Jesus returns, then your telos is the renewal of all things. It's on the front of our bulletin, isn't it? The renewal of all things. And this starts now. If you embrace the hope and power of the resurrection of Jesus, then eternity and resurrected life starts now. And you, Paul Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, he says to us, you have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has defeated sin and death for you. You have been set apart. You've been set apart to live life after life. You have been made holy, set apart. And so now in this life, in the face of all that is around you, the will of God for you is your continued sanctification, Paul says. Or your holiness. It's the same word. That's verse 3 of our text this morning. Paul says, be different. Be set apart. And the problem is that when we don't believe this and walk in this, we will do anything we can do to set ourselves apart. And if, if social media is any indicator of our desire to set ourselves apart, to be set apart on social media, you have to do three things, I think. Or, or, or I think it shows us this, this uh, set-apartness that we chase after. Be as sexy as you can be to gain the most followers. Love yourself 
and people who love you and work so that you can fulfill some extraordinary purpose and go on the best vacations. I realize that's tremendously ironic since I'm going to Italy. (laughs) Advertising suggests to us that this is the way we should live life. I believe, I do believe that the American Evangelical Church has bought into this telos as well. Be as sexy as you can be to gain the most followers. Love yourself and those who love you. Work so you can fulfill your extraordinary purpose and go on vacation. The best vacations. We all starve for holy. We starve to be set apart. I don't see, I don't want to just be, I don't want to only be Justin Timberlake. All right? I want to be Justin Timberlake and John Wick combined. You know, like this poet, songwriter, warrior, right? That's what I want. Maybe you don't want to just be Bill Gates. You want to be a cross between Bill Gates and Tim Ferriss and work a four hour work week the genius entrepreneur. Or maybe you don't want to just be Beyonce. You want to be Beyonce and Oprah. Or if we could just get close to one of these people, if we could just get close to one of these people, then we will be extraordinary. We want to be set apart. We starve for holy. Now we might be tempted to think that the answer Uh, That that Paul's answer to this is to pursue our holiness, our biblical holiness, by separating ourselves from the world. But biblical holiness isn't about setting yourself apart and becoming arrogant and self-centered only to stay in our holy little bubbles and keep ourselves tainted from the world. That's rather inward. Interestingly enough, this kind of distorted holiness, this set-apartness, is similar to our culture's idea of how to set ourselves apart. You know, be sexy, love yourself, be extraordinary. It's all about me. It's very self-centered. Both are inward. Both are self-focused. Neither of them have any concern for the other. In In many ways, this sermon is part three of two sermons I preached over Christmas where we looked closely what it means to to really be holy and set apart. If you remember, part of God's holiness is that he is set apart from all other beings, but he entered our world. He entered enemy territory. He he became human. He destroyed sin and death. He overcame a great distance. The most set apart being, the most just being, the most beautiful being, the most merciful being, the most powerful one demonstrated his love and holiness by beating death. And do you see how outward God's holiness is rather than inward? So biblical holiness says, if you put your faith in the power of the resurrection, you're already set apart. You've already been been set apart. You were loved and known by the most extraordinary being in the universe, the one who defeated death. You're loved and known by that one. So what now? How do you be set apart? I'm not sure Paul would have had a lot of followers on social media himself. Uh, Here's why. The gospel is a hard sell. The gospel is a hard sell. The gospel doesn't say our telos is to set ourselves apart. It says you've already been set apart. The gospel doesn't say be sexy, love yourself, and be extraordinary. 
Paul says, flip the culture upside down, actually. If your telos is life after life, this is what it looks like to be set apart, knowing that Jesus will return and make all things new. And in this life now, be holy. Pursue chastity. Demonstrate the love of God to others. And embrace the beauty of ordinary. So, on your sermon notes, I didn't have time. I didn't get my outline. Uh, if you, if you uh, want to put those in there now. Uh, I didn't get my outline to the printer in time or, or the, the bulletin in time. Pursue chastity. Demonstrate the love of God to others. And embrace the beauty of ordinary. So first, pursue chastity. What in the world is chastity? Uh, it's kind of an archaic word. And you don't hear it talked about very often. We don't use it very often. In verse 3, Paul says, Abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So like the Thessalonians, we live in a culture that is sexually broken. I think there is a real sense in which we have made uh, sexy and sexuality a telos. And the reality is that we are all sexually broken in some way. Jimmy and, I, Jimmy and I were talking this week, and he said this, that we are a people who have abused the power of sexy and the passion of sexuality. I think ultimately we do this to set ourselves apart or to gratify ourselves at the expense of another. And Paul says, this is not resurrected living. This does not bring life and human flourishing. It brings death and the vengeance of God. And we have proof of this. We have proof of this before our eyes this year, in recent years. Do you know where our, our over-sexualized culture has gotten us? The hashtag me too. It, it's been so hard to watch. We have seen person after person, man after man, fall. Some people that we respect, surprised by. And we've seen brave victims speak up about their abuse. And it's forcing us, it's forcing us, I think, I hope, to take a look, a hard look at the culture we have created, and our culture that desperately needs to pursue chastity. And chastity is not simply, it's not simply abstaining from sexual activity. Paul describes this, it is, it is taking captive our thoughts, our, our thoughts and our words and our deeds our bodies, for that which is honorable. Paul also said to the church in Ephesus, he says this, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And our, and our culture lives and breathes sexual brokenness, whether it's Pornography or a joke 
from Michael Scott in the office. Chastity involves resisting the temptation to abuse the power of sexy. It also involves resisting the temptation to abuse the passion of our sexuality. Chastity, chastity protects that which is holy and honorable by not even allowing a hint of sexual immorality in our thoughts and even our jokes. That's the level that Paul is speaking of. That's That's tough. Can you imagine, can you imagine for a moment the beauty of a world with no sexual immorality? No distorted sexuality. All the anxiety, all the fear, all the jealousy, all the shame and insecurities are gone. I think that's the starting place for pursuing chastity. That we imagine this kind of world that is to come when Jesus returns. That we recognize we are set apart by the resurrection of Jesus. We are set apart. We are set apart to experience life after life. And eternity starts now. And that despite our sexual brokenness, we recognize we are known and we are, we are still loved. Known and loved by the most extraordinary being in the universe who defeated death. And he resisted temptation and sin to the point of shedding his blood, says the writer of Hebrews. It is obvious that what we do with our sexuality is so very clear that what we do with our sexuality now uh, has impact on human flourishing now. Uh, But you see, what we what we do also has impact on the life to come. And because what we do now with our thoughts, words, and bodies has impact on the life that is to come, we can, we can enter that resurrection, resurrected life and delay gratification. There is nothing, nothing wrong. I don't think, I think this is true. There's nothing wrong with being sexy or pursuing passion and sexuality as long as it's in the right context. The context of marriage. There is actually something rather beautiful and holy about it. There's, there's so much more to talk about here. Let me say this. If there is sexual sin of any kind that you have never gotten over, and... Um, or emotional effects that you still do, deal with, please talk to someone, talk to me, talk to Jimmy, talk to somebody that you trust and start talking about it because there is freedom. I know there is. Find someone you trust and talk because you are set apart. Be set apart. Pursue chastity for your own purity, and for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Pursue chastity for the sake of human flourishing in this life and the next life. Okay, that's chastity. Uh, Paul goes on to say, to be set apart... You, you are already set apart, but to continue in your set-apartness, continue in your sanctification, to be set apart, demonstrate the love of God. 
Verse 9 in our text. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, Paul says. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, Paul says. One, one Wednesday night with the youth this year, uh, we talked about the different Greek words for love. And one that Paul uses here that we translate as brotherly love is Philadelphia. This, of course, is where we get the name for the city, Philadelphia. And what's, what's, the, what's the city of Philadelphia? The city. <laughs> Wonderful people. There you go. The city of brotherly love. <clears throat> Paul says, no one should write to you because you've been taught by God to agape one another. This love, this, this, this word agape means a love that is more of a self-sacrificial kind of love. The love our Father demonstrated by giving us His Son and His Spirit and dwells within us. And, and, and so we're talking about these words on Wednesday night. And uh, I got permission to use this. Uh, it was Valentine's Day. Uh, the Hamels, uh, Doug and Jonathan, was it Jonathan? Yeah. Doug and Jonathan came up, and, and they stayed in the back of the room while we had our lesson on love. Uh, and at some point, at some point, Jonathan says, he just ch- kind of chimes in from the back, we're talking about Philadelphia, we're talking about agape, we're talking about all these things. And Jonathan goes, uh, sometimes when my brother's really mean to me, it's really hard to agape him. And I was like, exactly. I know exactly what you mean. And that's the kind of love that Paul said the Thessalonian church was demonstrating. One commentator says this, quote, Regardless of personality differences and conflicts, all believers should be bound together in warmth and concern for each other because of their relationship in Christ. Brothers in Christ are often closer than blood brothers because of their spiritual bond and oneness of mind in the Lord. Jesus kind of ups the ante a little bit for us on this this agape Philadelphia love. He says in in his most famous sermon, He says, for if you love those who love you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Jesus called us to be set apart in our love, called us to be different in the way that we love. And the love of the Gentiles, Jesus said, was transactional. I love you if you love me. And Paul, Paul was encouraging the church in Thessalonica, applauding them that though times were really tough, they were even somehow loving people throughout Macedonia with an agape Philadelphia kind of love. And I think Paul would do the same for you, Mountain Fellowship. I think he would say the same things about you. I think Paul would do the same you, because you guys Philadelphia's well. Even when things are tough, this is a church that loves well. We have amazing small groups that care for each other well. 
You guys love people self-sacrificially, people from the Pacific Northwest to the Czech Republic. You have leaders. You have leaders and a pastor. It is just an absolute blessing to work with these people because they really do want to do church right. And they love you well. And they, they labor for you well. And they shepherd you well. They love Mountain Fellowship and they love Signal Mountain. You guys are loving well. So be encouraged. And Paul says, let's just do it more and more. All right? Let's do it more and more. Why? Because you are loved by the most extraordinary being in the universe who defeated death. Be set apart. Demonstrate love for the sake of the other, not for the sake of being loved in return. Your holiness loves for the sake of human flourishing in this life and the one that is to come. So, pursue chastity for the sake of human flourishing in the glory of God. Demonstrate love for others for the sake of human flourishing in the glory of God, not what you can get in return. And third, embrace the beauty, the last one, embrace the beauty of the ordinary. Miles away from ordinary. You guys remember this tagline? Over the years, in in past years, Corona Beer uh, has had commercials with this tagline. The first of which, the first, I think the very first of their, these commercials, uh, shows the landscape of a beautiful beach. No human sounds, just seagulls and waves crashing. Uh, two people sitting on beach chairs with a Corona bottle in the middle of the table and a, and, a, and a lime sitting there on top, glistening in the sun, all beautiful. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden it says, miles from ordinary, right? I always thought Bud Light should do some commercial where it has this commercial, or where it has this, uh, uh, this landscape of beautiful, lush grass, a guy with his feet propped up uh, with a beer can just sweating in the sun. And all of a sudden, the camera pans back and circles around, and it shows the guy, his feet are propped up on a broken-down lawnmower with kids screaming and fighting 10 feet away. The guy picks up the can and the tagline says, 10 feet away from ordinary. <laughs> Be good, right? I think I'm going to write them. <clears throat> Many of us live in an ordinary life, and we are restless and unhappy, and we long for something extraordinary. We want to set ourselves apart, and we, we are a culture obsessed with using extraordinary things to set ourselves apart. Finding some extraordinary perfect uh, purpose, having impact. We want everything to be crazy, awesome, and spectacular. I read an article in Business Insider. Uh, it's entitled, Why 20-somethings are miserable. And, and I, I, as I read the article, I kind of saw myself in it, and I was like, hold up, maybe 40-somethings too. The author, the author argues that, that my generation and below ha- has been told that we should pursue, we've been told all of our lives that we should pursue some sort of fulfilling career. And, and everything about our culture is trying to prove to us and convince us that we are special. So 
fulfill a, you know, fulf- or get a fulfilling career, and you're special. And if we are honest, most of us really believe that we are special. And we are hunting for something extraordinary, he says. The author says, we think, sure, uh, everyone will go and get themselves some fulfilling career. That's possible. Everybody can find this. But I am unusually wonderful. And as such, my career and life path will stand out amongst the crowd. Uh, You can't see this, I'm sure. But this is a graph that he uses to, to explain it. And the, all these green columns are this grassy, fulfilling career. And, and this one's just above the rest, and it's got a unicorn up on top. <laughs> and the unicorn is, is uh, spewing rainbows. Uh, and so the idea is that, yeah, everybody can get a fulfilling career, but mine's special. I'm special, and I've got to find that special career. And that's why we're so miserable, he says. We want to be a unicorn. That's Business Insider. And I believe uh, this idea has stampeded into the church and taken over a bit. I read somewhere recently that being radical for God is, is the new legalism. Do extraordinary things for God. Find some fulfilling purpose. Be extraordinary to be holy. And if you aren't doing something extraordinary then you aren't being faithful. That's what the church, I think, is picking up, has picked up. But remember, Paul says, you're already set apart for life after life. You don't have to kill yourself. You don't have to kill yourself to be a unicorn. So now, in a world where work ethic is inwardly and systemically broken... Paul says, live quietly. Work with your hands. Mind your own affairs so you may walk properly before outsiders. Doesn't sound very extraordinary, does it? I fear Paul. I fear Paul. Not good on social media. Uh, Also, he would make a very poor ad writer for Corona or the American Evangelical Church. Paul says, to be set apart, embrace the beauty of ordinary. My wife, Carrie Beth, is an extraordinary human. And she has lived an extraordinary life. If you don't know by now, she worked as the executive personal assistant uh, to Taylor Swift. I am talking about this level of personal assistant. She was her alarm clock. She planned events for her. She managed her entourage and luggage. In New York, Carrie Beth lived in a $20 million apartment. In L.A., she stayed in a house in Beverly Hills right next to Taylor's. When she traveled around the world, she flew in first-class suites and lived in penthouses of five-star hotels. She once threw a party for Taylor where she met Justin Timberlake, (laughs) served Jay-Z a drink, and showed Beyonce to the bathroom. 
It doesn't get much more extraordinary than that. Carrie Beth and I started dating uh, long distance over the phone while she was on the 1989 tour. And as we talked, um, she worked in different cities, and I became convinced over the course of talking to her and just hearing her stories and hearing her struggles, and I became convinced that no human should work that kind of job. I also became convinced that that level of celebrity should not exist. No human should be that known by that many people. And Carrie Beth loved Taylor, and she loved her work. And she served Taylor well and worked. She actually worked to bring flourishing to all those around her. But the emotional toll it took on her was overwhelming. You see, there aren't any constants in that life. Everyone is using celebrity status to set themselves apart. There is no rhythm, no liturgy, no community. Everyone is known and no one is really known. The extraordinary, as it turns out, can be miserable. But the beauty of the ordinary life and the struggle of the ordinary life with the life-giving ordinary means of grace Look, if, you, if, you're a, if you're a teenager and you're, or you're just starting out in your adult life, let me let you in on my secret. Ordinary is beautiful. Embrace it. Just embrace it. Also, if you're at the end of your life and maybe you're thinking, gosh, did I do this well? Should I have? Could, could I have been? Ordinary isn't beautiful. Embrace it. And if you're around my age and, and, you're, and you're restless and you're warring with this idea of, is there something more for me? There may be. Uh, just like I was saying sexy isn't bad, and, and just like I wasn't saying loving yourself is inherently bad, I am also saying finding some extraordinary purpose isn't wrong. You may be made for some extraordinary purpose. People are. But making these things your telos to set yourself apart, it makes us miserable and it just doesn't bring human flourishing. This idea of finding an extraordinary purpose has plagued me. I mean, it has plagued me. I have, been, I have especially been thinking through this a lot, of course, probably while I'm talking about it. I've especially been th- thinking through this a lot lately because I had a dramatic life change and a job change. So you're getting, in just, just these next few bits, you're getting a bit of my journal out loud about my calling, my vocation. So here it goes. I'm a pretty good musician. I'm all right. I'm solid. You know, uh, I'm a decent singer, a solid worship leader. I've always been pretty good with my hands on detail-oriented stuff. So my dad... Uh, screams at me. He's been screaming, you're good with your hands, son. So maybe I could have been a dentist or a doctor or something like that. What What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? See, I'm thinking through those things. 
right now, I work part-time at Mountain Fellowship and full-time at a steel fabrication company, and one part of my job at Ben Parker Company requires significant data entry. And, and while I'm a decent musician and some other things, I've got to tell you this. I am a rock star at data entry. I always have been. Rock star. I'm pretty sure I can do things with a keyboard that's likened to what LeBron James can do on a basketball court. <laughs> Just saying. And I don't even need a mouse. Yeah. Mark Wyatt. <laughs> Mark Wyatt and I were comparing notes one day talking about the cool things. This is what we were talking about. The cool things that we can do with keystrokes. And, and, and we can do things in, in, in less than a second that would take you common people 10 minutes to do. I think I told Mark, I wish, I wish there was some sort of competition. I, 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 would, I would slay everybody. People need, to see, people need to see my data entry skills. But seriously, who wants to say they're a rock star at data entry? This is going to sound ridiculous. I, I turned data entry into an art. It's the way that I think about it. I'm not kidding. I love figuring out ways to get faster and faster and more efficient and more precise with what I do with my hands. I love to work. And, and, and in those 3 p.m. moments when things are, are just grueling and I'm just tired of data entry, I remind myself that what I'm doing is a service to my company that fabricates steel to form things like bridges and national forests and to energy companies that bring electricity to us so that we can flourish. And if the data I enter is incorrect, it's no bueno. So if you can pursue holiness... If you can pursue holiness and resurrection life with data entry to ship steel from Rossville Boulevard to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, how much more then as a school teacher? How much more than an events manager? How much more than an attorney, a dentist, a doctor, a stay-at-home mom? Your vocation your calling, they aren't for you to do something extraordinary to set yourself apart to amass wealth so that you can be secure in order, to, in order to live the good life. You are already set apart. You are set apart for life after life. As a follower of the resurrected Christ, you are called to see your vocation as a service to the world, to be a part of God's mission to bring human flourishing. And renewal of all things. So the Tim McGraw song, uh, it, it says, I hope that one day you get the chance to live like you were dying. But people, people who face death don't always respond the way the song says. Some people respond like Walter White. And if you don't know Walter White... He is the main character in the show Breaking Bad, who's a chemistry teacher that learns he has cancer and likely doesn't have long to live. Insurance doesn't cover his treatment. He has no money. And so he starts to cook and sell crystal meth. 
And it starts as a way to pay for his treatment. But as but you watch the show and his shame and his pride take him down a horrific path where he, abs- I mean, where he just essentially abandons his wife. He becomes completely self-absorbed. And he becomes obsessed with being extraordinary. He even creates his own alter ego. And then there's my good friend, Glenn Bruce Campbell in Memphis, who I got to introduce to Graham Landry, who did our offertory this morning. I think of them both as the anti-Walter White. Both of them diagnosed with cancer. Both of them having to, sh- to stare death in the face. Both men who have the resurrection and return of Jesus as their telos. Both men who have been set apart for life after life. Both men who show me that you can actually change the lyrics to the song and sing, live like you were living. In the face of death, both men are faithful to their wives and pursue chastity. Both men love the people around them with an agape Philadelphia's love. Both men embrace the beauty of an ordinary life doing ordinary work. Russell Moore said this about eternity. The moment you burst through the mud above your grave, you will, be, you will begin an exciting new mission, one you couldn't comprehend if someone told you. And those things that seem so important now, whether you're attractive or wealthy or famous or cancer-free, will be utterly irrelevant in the face of an exhilarating new purpose, one that you were prepared for in this era, but one that is far more than a mere sequel to your best life now. Let me pray for us. This is a prayer that adapted from something Michael Horton wrote in his book, Ordinary. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that the life we now live by the Spirit is is therefore already a down payment or security deposit on the blessings of the age to come. Help us to live with the ordinary world, with its common curse and common grace, with our ordinary growth in Christ through the ordinary means of grace of your word read and preached to us. Through the Lord's Supper, through our worship and prayers and fellowship with one another in our ordinary callings in the family, the church, and the world. Help us to be holy. Help us to pursue chastity. Help us to love others as we love ourselves. Help us to be ordinary. It is in Christ's holy name that we pray.